Welcome to Eternal Leadership. I'm Steve Ryder, along with my co-host, John Ramstead. And John, in that first episode where we talked a little bit about what is eternal leadership, you referenced an accident, a life-changing accident. But before we get into that, I want to find out a little bit more about your story and talk to the listeners. Tell them where you grew up what sort of background you came from, and what brought you to this point where eternal leadership really is a passion of yours? Well, you know, if we start from the beginning, Steve, I grew up in uh, Minnesota next to the biggest ski hill in the state, which had about a 400 vertical drop, 400 foot. So moving out here to Colorado, it was a very pleasant uh, change for us. But I grew up and went to uh, an all-boys Catholic military academy. So you would have think I, you might have thought by that I'm a, I was a troubled youth, but you know my my folks just wanted me to go to a, a good school to get ready for college. So when I went there the uh, first year, my dad said, "Listen, you can go to the school, and if you don't like it, you know uh, we can move. You can go to the the public high school." And after the first year, I got to tell you, I hated it. So I told my dad, I said, I don't want to go back. And my dad said, well, I was just kidding. <laughs> so I, I ended up graduating from St. Thomas Academy. Ended up being a great experience because it got me ready for college. You know, the habits that I needed to do well. One of the things, though, my whole time growing up, I had just this huge fascination with military history, especially World War II. My dad had been a combat air crewman, uh, and a radio men and tail gunner in the Pacific in World War II. Mm -hmm. And my uncles had fought in Vietnam, and my grandpa had fought in World War I after coming here from Norway and immigrating and only being here a year. Um, he enlisted to, uh, to go fight for America. And, and we have relatives going all the way back. So I knew from a very young age that I wanted to go into the military. And the thing that fascinated me most about World War II history was uh, the air war. Uh, the Luftwaffe, the uh, Army Air Corps. And so as a young kid, I had this dream to become a fighter pilot. And mm -hmm. I didn't know how I was going to do that, but I knew I wanted to do it in the Navy. I wanted to fly off aircraft carriers. And so I applied. I got into the Naval Academy, and I also got an ROTC scholarship. And I got to college, and I'll never forget, I wa it was about the time to apply and choose our we call a pipeline that's what the military calls it. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys uh, from aviation came in and he said that, you know, if everybody thinking about applying to aviation, only one in 10,000 people that are in, you know, starting the process right now end up in the cockpit of a jet fighter. And I got to tell you, right then I checked out. I did not, I did not have the self-image, the self-confidence to see myself succeeding in that area. So here's what I did. I, I, I was in an engineering program. I was doing very well. So I decided, you know what? I'm, here's my default plan. I'm going to go nuclear subs. I can get out of the Navy, uh, have a career in nuclear engineering. So I signed up and I did a, a cruise on a nuclear sub between my junior and senior year for a month. And I, uh, it was not for me, man. Uh, living in this tube underwater. Uh, my bed, if I laid on my side, my shoulders hit the top and the bottom of the bed. My head was on the, the top of the rack and my feet were, you know, on the bottom. I, I mean, I was. Well, was, you're, you're a tall guy. You're 6'3", 6'4". 6'3", 220. 
uh, when I was fit. I'm a little bit more than that now. Uh, but anyway, not too much more. Uh, but it wasn't for me. So I got back and I realized what a mistake I'd made because I hadn't even applied to aviation. Yeah. And so I went and I actually took the entrance exam called the AQTFAR, did well. I walked my application all the way through. End of the story is I got into the flight program. I got to tell you, I was thrilled. Uh, I was excited. I was a little nervous. And I'll never forget, my dad gave me some fantastic advice. I was heading down to Pensacola to start flight training. And my dad pulled me aside and he said, you know, there's going to be somebody down there who is just crushing it. He's going to be a student that everybody's talking about. He's going to be the ace of the base. Get to know that person and find out what he's doing because he's doing something different than everybody else down there. So I did that. The guy that I found, uh, his name was John Foster. He became a great friend of mine. And I asked him what his philosophy was. He goes, you know what? I've never flown before coming down here. And my, I think it's not the best pilots that become number one. It's the best students. I'm like, what do you mean by that? He said, well, we have to learn and memorize massive amounts of information. And um, we have to re recall all this information. They're throwing things at you, emergency procedures and things that happen while you're operating an airplane. And so what he did is he taught himself to juggle. So he would juggle doing something physical. And while he was doing that, he had a stack of about a thousand index cards. And he'd have somebody quiz him as he was juggling. And if he got one wrong while he was juggling, he'd redo that whole section. And so I did what, what he recommended. So do you juggle still? <laughs> I can't. Well, now I only have one eye because of the accident. So I have no depth perception. And so no juggling is just a horrible mess. So it's a great way for me to make lemonade because I just smash everything. Uh, but the other thing he said was, you know what? Uh, the selection for each class is unique. So he built relationships with people that were three, four classes ahead of him. And every time he flew, he'd call them up and just say, hey, you know, hey, you flew with Lieutenant Ryder last week. What was he like in the plane, in the brief, in the debrief? And what, was, what did he really stress? What was he kind of real hard-nosed about? And I went into every flight with just that little bit of information on what to expect. And I've been pre uh, preparing differently than everybody else around me. What that led to was I graduated number one in primary flight training, and I was able to select jets. And then mm -hmm. I kept doing that, and I graduated number one in intermediate and advanced jets and in qualifying and landing on the carrier. Uh, so I was able to select. I, I put down my selection, and I got my first choice, which is to fly F-14s out of Virginia Beach at NAS Oceana. And I'll never mm -hmm. forget the the day my wife and I, Donna, we've been married 25 years now, and... Uh, Driving into Virginia Beach for the first time, we checked in. We got there at like 2 in the morning, and we're, it's like 7 in the morning. We're hearing all this jet noise roaring over our head, and we run out on the balcony of the, the BOQ, the, the bachelor officer's quarters, like a Navy hotel, and yeah. here's all these F-14s coming in to the break and flying over our heads, and I'm looking up going, oh, my gosh, I get to fly those things. And uh, that's where the journey started. So I, I was went, was that was that oh my gosh, and excited or in realizing the enormity of what it was and almost being a little overwhelmed. No, total pure excitement. I mean, I've been <laughs> I've been flying for two years, right? I'd flown the the T two, I've flown the A four yeah. Skyhawk, which is the advanced jet trainer. That if you remember the movie Top Gun, yes, remember the uh, small little jet that the instructors flew. 
Yeah. That's the, uh, that was the, I had about 110 hours flying that, that plane, which is what we use for advanced training. And that plane is amazing. It can do two aileron rolls in a second, 720 degree per second roll rate. You just throw the stick over to the side and boom, boom, boom. Uh, I mean, the thing was incredibly maneuverable. So I went through the F-14 training and uh, got out uh, of the training and there was a pilot in Japan, uh, uh, what we call a nugget. He was a new guy and he had real problems landing the F-14, which is one of the harder airplanes to land on the boat. And he had uh, gone through a board and they, and they took him out of flying status. So they needed a replacement pilot. And they picked me to do that. And I did not want to go to Japan. But the only upside was Desert Storm was just about to start. And our carrier, the USS Independence, was heading into the Persian Gulf. So I was going straight to a aircraft carrier that was being deployed for what we were uh, thought was going to be a combat cruise. And that's what it turned out to be. So I joined the squadron. We went straight to the Persian Gulf. And I ended up flying combat sorties over Iraq for Desert Storm. And then uh, we transitioned into Operation Southern Watch, which was enforcing the no-fly zone. And then I got back, uh, we got back to Japan after this cruise, and there was just tremendous personal growth and lessons learned that I could share. You know, we'll do that through the other episodes in the podcast during that period of my life. But I'll never forget, I went into my uh, commanding officer, and uh, I, I loved everything about the Navy. The culture is very unique. You... Your life depends on the proficiency and the excellence of the people that you're flying with. Yeah. And you could count on everybody, even guys that maybe you weren't best friends with or didn't even like. You knew you could count on them. You knew they had your back. But the camaraderie and uh, the closeness of the officers in the squadron was uh, something I just really uh, drew me in, and I loved it. So I asked our skipper, which is a commanding officer, you know, I want to make the Navy a career. I want to be the commanding officer of a fighter squadron. What advice would you give me? And uh, he said, you know what? Everybody is trying to get noticed by leadership as we rank and promote people. And they everybody's trying to do something big and splashy to kind of make a name for themselves. And the way to do this is, you know what? Serve every day. Find somebody in the squadron to serve, whether they're senior or they're junior to you that moves the mission of the squadron forward, but also helps that person individually. And you might not ever get noticed or recognized or talked about publicly about what you're doing, but trust me, everybody who's in a leadership role in this unit is going to be noticing things like that. And I started doing that. I got, and it paid huge dividends. Mm. Uh, I got early promoted, uh, at the end of my, uh, tour in the squadron, uh, every, once a year, they have one pilot that they can send to Top Gun. And it is very competitive to be that person that gets selected. Because what happens is you go to Top Gun, you become an expert in aerial warfare and employing the F-14 in combat. And then your job is actually to come back and be the, it's almost a train the trainer. You come back and teach the squadron everything that you learned in Top Gun, transfer of knowledge. And uh, I was selected to do that. So I had the orders to go to Top Gun freshened my hands as a student from our air wing. And uh, it was that next weekend, I was actually playing softball with some friends. Mm -hmm. And it was just a, a practice game because we had a tournament coming up. And I hear somebody yell, look out! And I turned in the softball. Somebody had hit a line drive, uh, came off the bat funny, 
was heading straight at my face. I tried to get out of the way and I couldn't, and it hit me right square in the right eye and it blew out the back of my eye socket. Mm. And I had nerve and muscle damage in my right eye and I was done. Uh, it was about a year until I was able to get out of the Navy, but, but I was done. So here I was with my dream since I've had since childhood completely ripped away. And I had no idea what I wanted to do next. I had no direction in my life. Uh, you know, that mentorship that I sought when I went down to Pensacola, remember how John Foster yeah. had such an amazing impact in my life. I was trying to find people like that in business, in the business world, but I knew nobody other than some friends of mine that, you know, we graduated college with, but they were, they were all in the middle of their careers doing things that I wasn't qualified for, quite frankly. And so for the next two years, I was honestly just this wandering generality. I, I was, I, I had probably five or six different jobs, tried to start a company that didn't work. And, uh, but I finally fell into a role in sales and I found that I was really just had a, a knack for just relationships and working with people that kind of that same, uh, I guess, philosophy that my skipper had, had really instilled in me is, you know, serve others, right? If you add, if you want to serve others and add value, everything is going to work out, right? It's, uh, uh, it just became a way that I lived. So a friend of mine called and said, hey, we're, I'm starting a company back here in Minnesota. Why, I was in San Diego. Why don't you move back to Minnesota? Let's start a company together. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, do you remember the show Sanford and Sons? Of course. Okay. So we were the Sanford and Sons of the computer industry, man. This was a, a brilliant concept. We were, uh, what we would do is we would buy used computer equipment, big stuff, mainframes and mid-range stuff from Sun and IBM and yeah. Uh, and we would bring it in and part it out and we would, we'd sell the parts and, uh, it was very profitable. Uh, but I knew, you know, this is in the, the run up to the dot com area. And I knew that so many of my friends were, you know, developing some pretty significant net worth during this period of time. Now it was also during this period of time when I was in this transition that some friends of mine invited me to a church service. And at that church service, I went forward and, uh, accepted Christ as my savior. And I got to tell you that first couple years in that relationship was just, uh, really life-giving for me, changed my priorities, grounded me and brought yeah. me a, a sense of purpose that I hadn't had before. But at the same time though, I remember you was telling me that Donna, your wife didn't go up. And in fact, she didn't even want you to go up. No, to, you know, to go, you know, truth be told, I was sitting there and the pastor says, listen, there's one more person that needs to come forward. And I'm uh, honestly, I'm, I'm sweating. My hands are sweating. And I go to get up to go forward. And Donna grabs arm and pulls me back down in the chair and says, don't you embarrass me. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I sat back down. Um, yeah, quite a leader, huh? So anyway, uh, the pastor says that again. And the next thing I knew, I just was out of my seat and I was up forward. And I'll never forget as I was praying that prayer, I was just filled like from my feet up, like it was like hot black coffee being replaced with this cool water. And I'll never forget, I, uh, the friend who had invited me there, Jeff Saavedra, uh, I felt him put his hand on my shoulder. I thought he'd come up behind me and I'd just say, wow, you know, I'm here as you're praying. And I looked behind me and there was nobody there. It was just 
and I could still feel that pressure on my shoulder. I can feel it now. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it. And you know, that was a, that was a, a major change in my life. But Donna did not, uh, accept Christ that morning. And I got to tell you, I got some great counsel from some friends of mine. Uh, it said, listen, God loved you unconditionally your whole life. I was 27 at the time. Yeah. And you need to love Donna with that same unconditional love, whether she makes this decision or not. Because, you know, you know what I wanted to do as a new believer, right? Pull her into this new world, right? And she was still, you know, we were still engaged with all the the old friends and going to the O club and the whole fighter pilot, you know, type uh, mentality, right? Work hard, play hard. And uh, that's where all her friends and relationships were. Yeah. And it was during the course of that year that I think she saw some changes in me. And she, a year later, uh, uh, went forward and we were, this was actually while we were still in San Diego. We started going to John Maxwell's church and uh, who's now uh uh, no longer a pastor. He's a leadership author, but uh, he baptized both Donna and I. And it was just an incredible experience for both of us. And then that got our, our lives together. But so then, you know, go to Minnesota, start this company. And uh, as I got to know people, I, I had this eye toward getting into a company that was really part of this internet craze, right? Equity, you know, public offerings, stock. I wanted some of that. And a friend of mine, a gentleman who became a friend, he was the CEO of a startup software company doing data mining software. He asked me to come over and be the vice president of sales for North America and their chief operating officer for this company, which was honestly, I, I had completely outkicked my coverage on this one. I felt totally unprepared and out of my depth, but, but Tim had confidence in me to do this. And I'll never forget... Uh, our, we, we had an appointment with one of the biggest internet companies in the world. All their founders and executive board were on the cover of magazines and being written about. Yeah. And we're going to this first meeting. And Tim looks at me. It's just me and Tim. And it was their CEO, CFO, and their chief technology officer. And Tim's, Tim's like, hey, John, you're going to be leading this meeting. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is like two days prior to this. So I'm preparing the night before this meeting. I couldn't sleep. I was so nervous. I was nauseous. And when we showed up in the meeting, and I'll never forget this room that we were in. It smelled like coffee. All these big picture windows behind me and to the left side, all oak paneling in this big, long, huge conference table. And just the five of us, me and Tim on one side and those three on the other side. And yeah. as I went to start, uh, Steve, I mm -hmm. literally threw up more than once in the back of my throat and had to swallow it down. I'm drinking my coffee, which made it worse. And, <laughs> and I start, I start, I'm sweating. I mean, this was horrible. I, yeah. I start stuttering. I'm stammering. I'm trying to talk about what our company does. And, and, and Tim just reaches over and puts his hand on my, on my paper and he just takes over. And I, yeah. I felt such a sense of relief, but also a sense of total failure. And we ended up not getting this company as a client for our firm. We walk out, we get in the car, and I, I honestly thought this was, I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm fired. I mean, I'd fire me, uh, is what yeah. I was thinking. And we get in the car, and Steve goes, well, how do you think that went? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I, I made something up. I don't know. I, but basically, hey, that was horrible. And uh, 
Tim looked at me and goes, you know, what were you thinking about when in that meeting? And uh, I was trying to tell him, you know, value, da, 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 da. And he's like, no, what you were thinking about, John, was yourself. And how you looked in front of these guys that you wanted to impress them. Uh, I could tell you were intimidated by these guys and you were nervous. If you had gone in that meeting and you had focused completely on adding value to them, their lives, what our company can do to enhance their customers' lives, their shareholders, their bottom line, and your focus had been on them, it would have been a totally different meeting. He goes, mm -hmm. next time we have a meeting like that, I know you're going to do so much better. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not, not, not only do my, for your confidence. Well, you know what to have, I think that's the power that we have with relationships, but also in believing in somebody else in seeing potential in somebody else that they don't see in themselves yet. When Tim did that for me, I got to tell you, it was a turning point. It was an inflection point in my entire career, both in sales and executive management, because I, I saw myself differently. I saw myself through Tim's eyes of somebody that can not only achieve in this environment, but thrive. And we took that company. I grew that to a million dollars a month in sales. We did not survive the 2002 downturn. Uh, we just weren't at the critical mass point yet. Uh, but what that led is I got, I, one of our customers was a Fortune 100 company. They hired me to come on their uh, management team. And uh, it was a division that had done a million dollars a year in sales prior to coming in there. We grew that over the next three years to almost $100 million in sales. Uh, I had to hire and develop and train every single person of this. Basically, uh, it was really neat uh, opportunity because we basically did a startup inside of a Fortune 100 company to address a new market that was really had emerged after the uh, internet crash. Uh, but during this whole time, doing the, the startups and after getting out of the Navy, I was working 80, 90 hours a week, traveling constantly. I was minimum on the road three days a week. And I was sitting in my office at this Fortune 100 company. We had two boys now at this time. They were three and one years old. And I'd realized I'd created this lifestyle. I don't even get to participate in it anymore. And they, they had just called me and said that my boss was retiring. He'd been with the company 20 years. They wanted me to take over his position. Mm -hmm. And I knew how hard Alan worked. I saw him on the road five days a week. He put in more hours than me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm stuck. If, I mean, this was a 2x pay raise. I mean, this was huge for me. And the stock options uh, were phenomenal. But I had a, such a, almost this moral dilemma. I'm like, I choose money over my family. This is what this choice comes down to. And I don't know if I can do that. And I was talking to Don about it and praying about it. And my phone rang and it was a friend of mine. He said, hey, listen, there's a Wall Street firm that's expanding here in Minneapolis. Uh, we want you, they would love, I told them about you. They'd love to interview you. Uh, mm -hmm. You would, wouldn't have to travel. You'd be home every night by five or six at night. And I'm like, hey, uh, let, uh, I, I would love to hear about it. Yeah. And it was 13 interviews over six months with this firm. It was wow. an arduous process. But they ended up hiring me and uh, totally changed careers from technology to financial services, working with a Wall Street firm. And uh, built a, uh, 
uh, just a great practice up there in Minneapolis. Um, so great that they would actually fly you to other offices so you could talk about how you built your book of business so quickly and share that with them. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was a great run for me. It, it was uh, my ego was being stroked. My, uh, you know, I'd gone into a tremendous amount of debt when our, when that business failed in two thousand and two. Yeah. So both at this Fortune 100 company at the Wall Street firm, I was making enough where I, I was actually to pay off all that debt. And um, it was in 2008, uh, right before the finance, it was in the January 2008, the CEO called me from, from uh, Wall Street and said, well, hey, we'd like you to move out to Denver. We're going to give you the choice. It's completely up to you, but we, we're having trouble getting traction out there. We'd like you to come out and be part of what we're doing there. And uh, it was an easy decision for Don and I to move to Denver. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I grew up and we've been driving and coming out to Colorado in summer and the winter. And uh, so we moved out here. We got out here in July 2008, right before the financial storm hit. And so the next couple of years was a tough road uh, to get through for me personally, uh, building a whole new network, uh, business, relationships. And this whole time, you know, before what really appealed to me was building. I really enjoyed being entrepreneurial building something that I had equity in. Mm-hmm. And at this firm, that, that was not the, the structure at all. So in January or uh, no, what was it? April of 2011, I left the Wall Street firm and I joined a local firm that was owned by a public bank. We were going to buy that division back from the bank, bring it private. And me and a very good friend of mine, Jay Cleary, were going to uh, help grow that business. The founder had been there 40 years and we knew eventually he was going to retire and we were kind of the succession plan. And I'd been mm-hmm. there five months. Now, during this whole period of time, Steve, with all these big successes financially, uh, my stature in the community, the boards that I was on, I had completely drifted away from any anchoring in my relationship with God. Uh, you know, I'd put together my yearly plan all on my own and I'd lift it up in prayer and just say, okay, here's my plan, God. I hope you bless it. Right? the end of the year, if we had great results, I'd be like, hey, thanks. And if we didn't, I'd be like, hey, what's up with that? Mm-hmm. That was about my relationship where I had drifted over the, you know, the, the 15 years since I first had that incredible experience that I, I shared with you. And it was interesting when you and I met, I just had this deep feeling of just discontent. I couldn't even put my finger on it. There was a longing huh. in my heart and in my soul for uh, something different that I couldn't have told you about, uh, whether it was having my life be more meaningful or try to accomplish things that I knew I was designed for, but I just didn't have clarity on. I, I, I don't know if I really could have told you at the time, but I just knew that I wasn't happy. And I, my, and Donna would tell you the same thing. I'd gotten to the point where I was just kind of grumpy and tired all the time, cranky, Um, but in the business world, I was incredibly effective still. Right. Yeah. So I get invited by a friend of ours, um, to, to, uh, go up and meet with people that are part of the Dobson's, uh, new ministry called family talk. And, uh, there was a whole bunch of potential board members, donors that were getting together up at this incredible ranch up in Montana. And, and I ended up knowing the owner of it. I'd met him on a hunting trip. And so I, I had a plane that I was using for business flying around. So I flew myself up there and uh, we got in uh, Thursday night and then uh, got to meet everybody. Had a great time getting to know you that night. 
And the next morning, we were going to all, for lunch, get on horseback and ride to the back of this incredible property and go have lunch and talk more about family talk. So I get on a horse. I'm the first one saddled. And uh, my horse was uh, definitely, uh, uh, I'll never forget, uh, the horse started walking forward and and I pulled back on his reins to get him to stop and he starts walking backwards, which I thought was a little odd. So I'm, mm-hmm. I remember sitting there holding onto the fence roll by hand, uh, like you would a boat at a dock to try to keep the yeah. horse kind of in one spot. Uh, you know, I've been a lot of trail rides before and, uh, then, uh, doc got, uh, saddled. And if I remember that he, yeah. he's, he trotted out into this big open practice yard and my horse wanted to follow him. So I let him follow and we're trotting along and all of a sudden, the horse just did a 90 degree turn to the right and he just bolted. He threw me straight back. I thought I was going to flip off the back of the horse. I was holding on with my legs as hard as I could. I thought I was going to get kicked in the head and, and fall behind the horse. And as he's pulling and accelerating step by step by step, it was, it was so hard, but I was able to pull all my weight back up over the center of the saddle. And I looked, uh, where the horse was heading, we're heading straight perpendicular to the steel corral fence line. And we were still, you know, 50, 60 yards away. We had plenty of time. I I was not too nervous yet. And I I grabbed the horse's head and I tried to pull him, his head to the left to turn him. And he just pulled his head back, almost pulled the rein out of my hand, which I thought was really odd. But now we're going faster and faster. We're getting closer to the fence. I try to get him to turn again, Steve. I pull his head as far as I could, and he pulls his head back and we're going straight at the fence. And I just feel like we're going faster and faster. And I got to tell you, I'm starting to panic. Uh, you know, I've flown combat missions at four or 500 knots at, you know, 100, 200 feet off the deck. Uh, I've had surface air missiles light me up while I'm over Baghdad. I have never felt this level of just sheer uh, or just being totally out of control in my life. And we're getting closer and closer to the fence to the point where I, now I'm realizing even if this horse turns, there is no escape. I'm going to get hurt. And so uh, I'll never forget as I'm this panic and this fear is just rising to this crescendo. It was like all of a sudden things just slowed down. It was like the, this moment of clarity. And I'll never forget thinking very slowly and clearly to myself, almost with a wry smile, this is not going to end well. And bam, lights out. That was the last thing I remembered until I woke up on the ground. And I guess what the horse did is right in front of the fence, he lowered his rump and tried to spin around and get out of it. But when he did that, he kind of bucked and he flipped over and he landed on his side and slid into the fence rump first. Uh, You were there. You might have seen what happened. But when he did that, he launched me into the fence and the top steel bar, which is like one of those three-inch rolled steel bars, hit me across the face. It hit me from my mouth up through my left eye. Uh, So it completely shattered my skull, uh, the middle of my skull, the base of my skull, shattered all the bones behind the the left eye socket, which severed the optic nerve. My left eye is completely blind. Uh, It broke my neck, uh, my shoulder. I broke my shoulder joint. It tore off the uh, rotator cuff and the labrum and the biceps tendon were all torn. And uh, also, uh, one of the bars hit me in the chest, and it sh- uh, I broke four ribs and uh, punctured my left lung. So, 
I remember waking up on the ground. Well, um, let, me, let, me, let me stop you here because yeah. th- this is the point at which I, I can fill in a little bit of a gap because I don't necessarily remember. I remember the horse taking off towards the fence. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember seeing you hit the fence, but I remember hearing you hit the fence. And at that point, I jumped onto my ATV, screamed across 70, 80 yards of this open corral area to get to you. And instinctively, your body was, you, you were pulling yourself up and, and, you were, and you were making this noise as if you had had the wind knocked out of you. And you did because you had punctured a lung. And, and, and I remember when I had gotten there, the first thing I said was, God, send your angels because we are going to desperately need you on this one. Hmm. Good thing and, you did. And, and, and at that point, I was trying to get you down on the ground. Some other guys started surrounding me, and we were yelling at you, John, you need to get down. John, you need to get down. And at the point at which I was ready to start barking out orders to get you to forcibly get you down, I was going to wrap up your legs. You're a big dude. You said you're 6'3", 200 30, 240 pounds. So it was going to take a few of us to get you down and, and make sure that your head was stable. And right at the point that I, I was starting to bark orders to everyone out, at, right at the point I was getting ready to bark out orders, you instinctively just started to go down to the ground on your own. And I was like, okay, good. Well, and what I heard also was uh, Lonnie, the ranch manager's wife, was there. And she, she was a trained EMT. She knew to stabilize my neck. Uh, but when I, I guess I, I passed out cause I don't remember any of that. I, I did wake up. What I remember was I woke up on the ground and I could feel, uh, somebody holding my head so I couldn't hold my head, uh, people holding down my shoulders and holding down my hips. Mm-hmm. And I could, and I could tell that it was a woman holding my, my right hand. Uh, and, but, uh, none of that gave me any comfort because the pain that I was in was beyond anything that I could tolerate or even describe. And I guess I was, uh, you know, my, my face was split open, so it was not a, a pretty sight for everybody around. I was yelling, no. screaming, moaning, writhing around because I was trying to get away from the pain uh, more than anything else as you guys were holding me down. And uh, I was honestly beyond my breaking point. It was like um, the only time in my life that was even close to that. I remember scuba diving I was yeah. only 30, 40 feet down, and I had a problem with the regulator. I just exhaled and I couldn't inhale. So I'm trying to get to the surface and I didn't think I could get to the surface before I was running out of air. And you know, that panic you feel when you're, you know, if you've ever been in a a drowning situation, it was like that at a whole, like times a hundred. And it was right at that moment when I could not take it that I just felt completely the presence of God just completely surround me. And it was, it was, amazing it was like the fabric of the universe steve is just made out of this pure unconditional love and and i got to experience that and just kind of rest in that and the first thought laying there with all this damage uh, i think i had almost 30 broken bones was i'm not worthy of somebody loving me like this that's the Mm -hmm. first thought that went through my brain when i felt god's presence and then, uh, you know, they talk about in Scripture the peace that passes all understanding. And uh, this peace was washing over me like waves in an ocean. It was like this rhythmic sense. Um, and as soon as I felt that peace, all that pain 
and panic and fear was completely taken away. Not even just diminished. I mean, it was gone like a memory, like as far as the East is from the West. I mean, it was, it was gone. And then I'm just resting there in this presence. I remember consciously wiggling my toes because I knew I'd hit my head at that point. Um, and I could hear everybody talking around me, uh, praying. Uh, so I was very conscious of my surroundings at the same time. And then God spoke to me and it was a voice, uh, that came from everywhere and nowhere. It's almost impossible to describe. And it was not to my ears. It was like, a, a stream of consciousness flowing right through my center, right through my chest, like right through your soul. I don't, I don't know where your soul is, but, uh, uh, that's what it felt like. And what he said was very clearly and calmly. He said, all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. And I'm going to heal you and use this for my glory. And then he said next, and I still wonder about it. He said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And as soon as he said that, I knew with total certainty that my left eye was permanently blind. Because I remember one of the guys there, I, you know, he was praying, you know, it became clear that I couldn't see out of that eye. And he was upset with me that I wasn't kind of buying into the prayers for the healing of my eye. Cause I said, no, God told me it's blind. And it still is to this day. It's, it's the, the nerve is completely cut in half behind the eyeball and it, it, it doesn't connect to the brain. Mm -hmm. But then I guess I, I woke up, opened my eyes and said, calmly, God's here. You don't have to worry. He said, it's going to be okay. And I think uh, all of you guys around me were kind of like, what? <laughs> well, I I, I was some of the other guys may have been what, but I, I really felt like God was there and other people may have been concerned about you, but I wasn't. You know, let me ask you a question because I haven't yeah. asked you this before. Yeah. I was there. God came. I was in his presence. Could you outside of this? Could you sense that? Could you feel yes. that at all? Absolutely. So as soon as, as soon as your body relaxed, I remember a couple of people starting to freak out thinking that we might be losing you, but I did not feel that whatsoever. Something I don't think I've ever told you about was the night before I had taken an Ambien. I, I made it a, a habit whenever I traveled for work, I would take an Ambien the night before just to make sure I got plenty of rest because sometimes the night before there was exciting stuff or we went out to dinner. And so I just, I wanted to make sure that I got enough rest and I had taken an Ambien, and it didn't touch me, not at all. And so I felt like God was telling me, okay, get up and pray, get up and pray. So I got up and I prayed. I was praying you know, for, for financial blessing, for family talk, and for this new ministry venture, and praying for everyone and praying for safety and peace. And I took another half an Ambien, and it still didn't touch me. And I got the night before, I got, I think, like three hours of sleep, if that. And so... I think because of that, I was extra sensitive to what God was doing. And, and as soon as your body relaxed, I knew it was going to be good. I knew it was not going to be an easy journey for you, and it hasn't been. But I knew that it was going to be fine. Interesting, because, well, you know, being in his, having just been in his presence, I remember uh, that it was an hour until life light was coming. Right, they told me that it was going to be a life flight, and I was actually thinking to myself, I was clear headed enough to go, "Cool, I get a helicopter ride out of this deal," and yeah, because in the military I'd flown in some helicopters, love flying in helicopters, and I remember just talking to you guys for that hour about, you know, uh, I'd broken, you know, I broke eight teeth, uh, so I remember 
asking a couple times about my teeth and what had happened, but we were talking about Donna and my boys. John was playing in the homecoming football game. Uh, yeah. That's why I flew my plane up there so I could get back early on Saturday to get to his game, which I missed. And um, uh, the, so then they go to load me in the helicopter, and I was like, well, it's cool. It's a beautiful Montana day. I mean, it was beautiful blue skies. It was perfect weather. And they strap me in. The only thing I can do is is look straight up at the blue skies and see the rotor spinning. And I remember trying to turn to look outside the window, but I I was totally strapped down. I had the neck brace on and everything because I broke my neck. And uh, so I just uh, relaxed, and uh, they got me to the hospital. And then they must have given me something as soon as I got there because I don't remember anything after that till I woke up at midnight. And uh, my one of my best friends and business partners, Jay Cleary, was sitting next to my hospital bed. He had flown up. He'd heard about the accident from Donna. And uh, when when they first called, I guess I was being acting normal enough uh, during this hour when Donna called and talked to Lindsay, who was up there. He's like, yeah, John, you know, John got thrown off a horse and you need to come up here so you can bring him back to Denver. And uh, so, you know, she was worried, but not, you know, not freaking out. And then when she called later, she talked to Dr. Dobson and he said, you know, I don't think you understand. Uh, this could be very light. Matter of fact, this is life threatening. You guys need to get up here as soon as possible. And uh, a friend of mine, Norton Rainey, uh, put out an email to a whole bunch of people to come up you know, just, just pray for me. And, uh, one of the guys who is friends with him, a guy named Alex Cranberg, who's a, uh, he has a, a jet that he uses for business. He said, how can I help the family? And Norton said, you know, the only thing they're, they're just trying to get up to, to, uh, Montana. There's nothing that'll get them there before Saturday night with the flights, you know, to get enough seats. And he said, I tell you what, my jet's down at the FBO, just come on over and it's waiting for you. And, and he got him up there early Saturday morning, first thing, and uh, which was incredibly generous. And so uh, I spent the next, uh, what was it, five weeks in ICU. I was there, I got in, uh, what, Friday afternoon. Um, uh, The whole family came up Saturday, and just the nature of a, a, a closed head injury like I had, as the brain slowly starts to swell Saturday and Sunday, I was actually fairly normal. So my kids were there. And, uh, so they saw dad injured, but they weren't too concerned. And Sunday night, Norton brought my, my kids back. And I gotta tell you how amazing friends are. He took, he, he took all three of my boys in, uh, for the next uh, five weeks that we were up in Montana. Cause Donna was there in my, my hospital room every single day for five weeks. And, you know, they took the yeah. kids in and drove them everywhere. And, but anyway, um, Sunday night, it became very clear that they were going to have to do emergency brain surgery, that they're going to have, they, they, they went in, they, they cut from ear to ear across the top of my, my skull and took this whole front quarter of the, the, uh, the skull off and the entire forehead had been shattered. I have six titanium plates up in there. The sinus had been just completely destroyed. They just removed that on the left-hand side. But before going into surgery, because that first month I have very few memories uh, just of, because of the accident, but I do remember very clearly the doctor standing on the right-hand side of my, my bed, Donna standing on the left, and he was explaining to her uh, about the surgery and the chances of survival, and if I did survive, that you know there's a chance I would not be the person she remembers. And yeah. I remember him asking her if I had a will. And we had just been working on that, and we, but we, haven't, we hadn't signed it yet. We just redid our estate plan. 
and he wanted to wait until they FedExed up the documents for me to sign before I went into surgery. And I remember laying there, Steve, going, you know what? It could be my funeral in a week. And what are they going to be saying about me at my funeral? And am I excited about it? What kind of legacy? You know, an inheritance is what you leave to somebody. A legacy is what you leave in somebody. And that's what I was thinking about. What if I left in the lives of my wife, my three boys who just mean the world to me, and to this world that I live in, relationships? I got to tell you, I started thinking about I wasn't proud about it. But, you know, being in sales and being in business, when I'd go to a networking event, a social event, right, I immediately scanned the room and said, okay, who do I need to talk to? Who could, you know, uh, be part of a deal that I could start or introduce mm. me to somebody that could make me money or everything for me personally was stack ranked in the order of what value do you have to me financially? And are those the kind of relationships that really are meaningful? And I realized that everything I'd done up to that point and why I was so discontent prior to this accident was all I was doing was trying to build my financial balance sheet, uh, my, my personal resume, and my stature in the community, being on the right boards and knowing all the right people. And just looking in that moment, all of that just became so almost petty to me, worthless. Yeah. I knew that there was a reason that God had saved me. I had no idea what it was. So what happened was is I, I ended up having two brain surgeries. I had, uh, well, I've had in the last uh, three years since the accident, I've had actually 23 surgeries and procedures. I won't go through what all those were, but some of them were very hard to get through. And But here's the one thing that really got me through all this was hope. And I got to tell you, having hope is one of the most powerful things in our lives. There was days when I was, you know, back home, I, I was a patient at Craig hospital here for 20 months in their traumatic brain injury unit. And I'd be down there. And I'd be so thankful. Most of the people there were in wheelchairs. I, I should have been a quadriplegic. I had uh, two different doctors tell me because of the fractures in the base of my skull and my neck, I should have been a quadriplegic. Uh, other doctors told me that they didn't even think this was accident was survivable. I met one of the doctors uh, a few months back who had been at the initial accident. And he said, he's totally come back to his own faith in God because mm -hmm. watching me recover, uh, and how functioning I am today, he didn't think that yeah. was even possible or that I'd even survive. So, you know, Steve, going through this journey the last three years, I was really, seeking and searching, you know, why God saved my life? You know, what, what is the, the meaning of me still being here? Why did he extend my life? And I, got, I was just in significant prayer and searching and reaching out for relationships and hired a coach to help me put all this together. But it was uh, early this year in February, over a weekend, uh, as I was praying, God spoke to me again. It's the first time I've heard him since then. And what he said to me very clearly is, I want you to use this life that I've given you to equip and inspire leaders to work in my kingdom. And those directions were so clear. And I was still working at that company that I had been at right before the accident. And I just knew that that is not where I was meant to be. And, you know, the mm -hmm. safety and security of the paycheck that I had there, um, it was much lower than I had had before, but it was enough to help cover the bills. But I decided, you know what, I need to just step away from that and trust God and to step into whatever he has planned next. 
And it was the next morning I was meeting with a good friend of mine, uh, a business leader. He said, listen, I have my business life. I have my, my family life and my faith and my role in the community. And they're like three pillars and I cannot pull the three together. And whatever I focus on does mm -hmm. well. And the other ones kind of languish. And he goes, I know the answers are inside, but I don't know how to unlock that. He goes, I'm going to hire a coach to help me through that. He goes, I think you should be a leadership coach. And if you decide to do that, I'll be your first client. <laughs> right. And I'm like, well, God, is this the answer? You know, I called a friend of mine. Actually, it wasn't a friend. Somebody uh, I'd met one time who I knew was an executive coach. And we sat down for a couple hours and I decided this is the direction that I'm going to go in. So here's what I've been doing in the last seven months since I uh, left Financial Designs, which was the name of the company. Incredible people supported me through all this. But I'm now working with uh, a number of executives and CEOs. I'm facilitating two roundtable forums of, of uh, groups of about eight CEOs each. And it became very clear to me as I got to know these leaders and understand where they're trying to go in life and create some velocity on uh, how to get to these places that they were still trying to get clarity on. But there was this deep need for just spiritual growth and stepping to that person God created them to be and just have excellence in every part of their life, how mm -hmm. to develop extraordinary lives and relationships and faith that all comes together to have meaning. And at, I know that I can work with just a very limited number of clients, probably about 12 one-on-one. -on -one. I want to just pour my life into their lives and, and work with them. Uh, but that's where this podcast came about is how do I take what I'm learning, what I've gone through and share that with more people, equip more people. And my, my, my prayer is, is that this podcast comes just an incredible resource for people to just become equipped in every aspect of their life, to be inspired and to have the courage to make some changes, to step into that life that they know that they can have. Yeah. And be a conduit because I think, you know, some of my of the last three years, some of the biggest times of growth that I have had have all come from personal relationships I've had with people, people that have sown into my life. And you can't do that just listening to a podcast uh, or reading a book or, or listening to a sermon. So that has to be connected with relationships. And uh, my sincerest prayer is that this podcast connects people with resources and relationship and discipleship and mentorship. And that's what we're reaching out to do. And that's what we're setting up with creating this community. And that's the vision for what we want to do is change lives in a way that will change this world. And so uh, that's why we're here. And I'm excited, really excited to see where this goes. Well, not just the podcast, but also the LinkedIn group that we're starting, the Facebook page, um, all of these different avenues that we have to reach people and connect people as well as some other ideas that we have in the future of possibly conferences and who knows where this could go books who knows yeah i don't know we're just you know at this point we're just uh, each day is a journey we're just putting one foot in front of the other and we're just seeing where god leads us so uh it could be huge it could be small but whatever it is we just hope it makes a difference well john i'm glad that i have gotten to know you through this accident and through your journey, um, you have become a very good friend, somebody that I genuinely admire and respect, and um, I'm proud to be a part of this with you. Well, thank you, Steve. I feel the same way about you, and uh, 
And, you know, here's to the next uh, couple years because uh, I have no idea what it holds, but uh, it's exciting. More than that, baby. More Tell than that. that. That's right. More than that. Every time I hear John's story, it always moves me. To see his recovery in person has truly been a testimony like few I've ever seen. And if you have found this moving, have connected with John, and you want to see what it could look like to have him as your coach, go to eternalleadership.com and there is a link to contact us. There are a couple other ways in which you can connect with John and myself. First off, you can like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash eternal leadership. There we'll have inspiring quotes, articles, links, and more. It's facebook.com slash eternal leadership. Another way would be for you to join our private LinkedIn group where you can interact with John, myself, and many of their thought leaders and professionals like yourselves. Just go to LinkedIn and type eternal leadership in the search box. And of course, visit our webpage, eternalleadership.com to check out past episodes, ways to subscribe to the podcast feed, links to our Facebook page and LinkedIn groups, John's executive coaching page, and a lot more. It's eternalleadership.com. Next time on Eternal Leadership, the Navigator's Director of Faith at Work, Steve Haynes. Have you found that that's a mindset that a lot of leaders have? Everything is very performance driven. That's just the paradigm that a lot of us are locked into. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think you have to break the old paradigm first. Yeah. You know, you've got to start letting things go. What we would probably call in the Christian world submitting to God. Mm -hmm. But I look at it in a different way. It's really submitting and letting things go of your own self and submitting to what God has for you, what he wants for you. From prodigal to success in business to 20 years in the White House to ministry, here's Steve's story and what the Navigators are doing with Faith at Work. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.